the book of Joel, and for the last time in this sermon series. Today we conclude Joel. We began on April 26th, 14 weeks ago, this journey through Joel, and I think it's been a tremendous journey, and I'm a little sad to say goodbye to this book. Um, My understanding of Joel's main theme, the day of the Lord, is so much richer than it used to be. I hope that that's true for all of you. I hope that in the book of Joel, we got to see a greater measure, I suppose, of God's promises and how, how they can carry us through any adversity, how, how um, they bring us to repentance. And when we look at times of difficulty and disaster and judgment, that too draws us to repentance, draws us nearer to God. All of these things we've gotten to see so beautifully portrayed for us in the book of Joel. I'm so thankful for this book. Next week, we begin a new sermon series, and we're going to be diving into the book of Proverbs. We're going to look at the first nine chapters of Proverbs, and then after that, we'll move on to something, something else, still secrets, but Proverbs next week, and I'm excited for Proverbs. I was, uh, my parents are here today. I was talking to my, to my dad this morning saying, you know, Joel is not on face value a very practical book. You know, it's all of these themes of, of judgment and restoration and things to come and things that have happened in now thousands of years ago. Uh, you can draw a lot of practicality out of it, but on face value, there's very little practical implication. Uh, and yet, when we come to the book of Proverbs, it's one of the most practical books in the Bible, the most practical book in the Bible. So it's going to be a big change, and, and I'm excited to uh, dive into that book of wisdom. It's going to be good. Well, Joel... The book of Joel, as we have seen, opens with these decrees of judgment. And Joel will not allow the Jews to think of, their, of the locusts and the drought as natural disasters, but that these signify the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has come upon Judah, the people of Jerusalem. The years of the locust swarm and drought, they have pushed the people now to the brink of starvation, and all of this must be understood as God's judgment coming upon them for their sins. Sins that aren't specified, but sins nonetheless. It is the day of the Lord. Judgment is upon them. And this this pain, this difficulty, this disaster that God brings upon Judah, it's not about the pain. It's not about bringing suffering to the people for the sake of the suffering. The suffering is meant to lead to repentance to draw the people away from their sins, to show them through this picture of of physical desolation, the desolation of the land. It shows them the spiritual desolation that's in their hearts, the physical desolation reflecting their spiritual desolation. So he calls them. He pleads with them. In Joel chapter 2, verse 12, God pleads with the people this, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. I love that line. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Deep soul repentance. And in worship and in repentance, the people do turn away from their sins and back to God, the God of their covenant. And in this turning, all of their misery, all of this disaster now shifts to these great promises of blessing 
abundant restoration. And then God goes further, further than just restoring the land of Judah. He begins promising another day of the Lord, a day that will come sometime afterwards, sometime in the future. Not a day of judgment, but a day of great salvation, a saving relationship with God like has never existed before. And God promises this to the people. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And as we saw, God is promising this prophethood of all believers. A time when every one of his people would have this direct connection with him, this intimacy with God, unparalleled in times past. Beautiful intimacy, rather than just a few select prophetic individuals. Now it's all of his people. The promised day of the Lord that we read of in Joel 2.28 is a day of new covenant of unprecedented salvation. And of course, we know with the advantage of time, of history, that this Spirit was poured out on all flesh on Pentecost. After the Messiah poured out His life, He poured out the Spirit upon the church. And then, as we have looked at for the past three weeks now, the other day of the Lord, another day of the Lord that is prophesied is the day of the Lord, the final day, a day of judgment and a day of salvation, a day when God judges all of the rebellious nations and he brings salvation to all of his people, a day when humanity is finally rewarded with heaven or hell. Joel 3.16 powerfully says, the Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. And we saw theophany initiates this judgment and this salvation where God, with a mighty roar, with the uttering of his name, rips apart the clouds and comes down from the mountain that once shrouded him, revealing his perfection and his glory and the wicked are consumed, and the faithful are transformed. And we saw this all playing out in this imagery of the valley of decision, where the nations are gathered like a bowl of grapes ready to be tread underfoot. And above the valley of decision is Mount Zion, where God sits in judgment over these nations and where the people flee to Mount Zion or find their refuge in Mount Zion and there they are saved. They find their refuge in God. And we see this imagery of the valley of decision of Mount Zion and so many more things all pointing to the final day. And today we're going to see more imagery in our final passage and I want to show you the greater realities that this imagery points to. But before we do that, we need to pray because we need God to teach us and to move in us and to reveal his word to us. Bow with me. Lord, we come before your word, feeble and broken with sin in us, And we ask that you would help us 
to hear your word and receive it. That these things would not be common to us, but would be supernatural and transforming us, taking root and growing, producing fruit of righteousness. That these things would ultimately lead us to Mount Zion where we find salvation. Transform us, O God, by the hearing of your word. In part now and entirely on this day. And so I ask you to use my words to do these things which I cannot do. Help us all this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's read his word. We're going to start reading in Joel chapter 3, verse 16. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, in my holy mountain, And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land." But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood that I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So once again, Joel directs our attention to that day. And he's prophesied about the day of the Lord now at least four different times. Four different days of the Lord. But we read about what we read about today, this this day right here. That day is being lashed to the final day. It comes in the final day. On that day or shortly thereafter, this day comes then when all of these things are going to happen. On that day. And, And what happens on that day? Restoration and abundance and the undoing of suffering. And with the reconciliation of humanity comes the reconciliation of the whole world, a new people and a new earth. And the way that Joel is framing this, is talking about the abundance, he's being so intentional about the language that he's using to show us that this is an undoing of all of the evil, of all of the suffering, of all of the desolation that our sins have brought upon creation. When God graciously restores his people. Look again at verse 18 to see this undoing. In that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. So we get four promises of abundance in that single verse. Each promise is undoing devastation caused by the sins of humanity, of the people of Judah, of what we have already read in in Joel. And so first God says the mountains shall drip with sweet wine. Back in chapter 1 verse 15 we read these words. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine. For it is cut off from your mouth. 
And chapter 1, verse 10 says the wine had dried up. And so a lack of wine, God is calling the people to mourn for the lack of wine. There's sorrow that comes with the locusts and the drought devastating the vineyards and cutting off the wine. But now, in chapter 3, God says that the mountains will drip with sweet wine as these plump grapes fall from the vine and roll down the hill and fall into the, the wine press and the weight of the accumulated grapes just squeezes the juices out as if the mountain is flowing with wine. And it's sweet wine, delicious wine, wine to enjoy, wine that delights, wine of gladness. As Psalm 104.15 says, wine to gladden the heart of men. Isn't it beautiful that God has given us wine to gladden the heart of men? Not to be drunkards. So this promise, it's not just about a promise of abundance of wine. It's a promise of abundance of joy. The mountains dripping with sweet wine is a promise of abundant joy. And then we see that the mountains are flowing with milk, dripping with milk. You know, milk is not an essential staple of life. You don't need milk to live. And it's only available in these, especially in these ancient times, it's only available when there's an excess in the land, abundance in pastures, abundance of cattle, where cattle and animals aren't looking for things to eat and people aren't looking for things to eat. Only in the excess is their milk. And so this milk, more than anything else, is a luxury. It's a luxury to have any milk at all, even more so than wine. But the droughts and the locusts have taken this from Judah. Joel 1.18, How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there's not pasture for them. Even... The flocks of sheep suffer. And so there's, you get this image of these emaciated cattle and, and livestock roaming the hills, groaning, lowing for things to eat, not able to find it. But in that day, the hills will flow with milk and there will be no lack, there will be so much abundance of green pasture that the milk will drip from animal to ground and gather into streams of delight and richness and wealth. And so this promise is not just a promise of milk. It's a promise of abundant blessing for the people. Blessing for the people. A richness. A material richness for the people. A blessing for the people. This indeed is a land now flowing with milk and honey. Leviticus 20, 24 says, I have said to you, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. And over and over again, we see this land referred to as a land flowing with milk and honey. But it never really was in the fullest sense. And so those ancient promises said long ago in Moses' day, in Abraham's day, are now coming to complete fulfillment in that day, in the day which Joel is prophesying. So this flowing richness of milk is an abundance of blessing for the people. Streams of blessing flowing from the mountains. There will be an abundance of wine, an abundance of milk, 
And the next promise, an abundance of water. And to a drought-thirsty people, this is such a sweet blessing. Stream beds shall flow with water. And the promise comes when, when all of Judah's stream beds have now been dried up. The drought is in the land. Joel 1.20 says, Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The water brooks have dried up entirely. But God promises stream beds now flowing with water. And that might not sound as exciting or dramatic as mountains dripping with sweet wine and hills flowing with milk until you remember that the land of Judah is an arid land and it experiences two seasons, the dry season and the rainy season. And in the dry season, the stream beds are dry. So what God is promising is not just an end to the drought, but a continual flow of water, such an abundance of rain all year long that these stream beds and these brooks and these rivers will never grow dry, never go dry. It is an abundance of rain upon the land, flowing uninterruptedly. So it's not just a promise of rain or of water or of rivers. It's a promise of abundant life. An abundance of life flowing through the land. These waters bring life. And then the fourth and final promise. Sounds like a one about water again, perhaps. But it is the most joyful promise of the four. A fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. The NIV says the valley of Acacias. Really, it doesn't seem to matter what that means, but there's this flooding coming from the temple, watering the land, going out from the temple. And so we have to remember the state of the temple in Joel's day. Joel chapter 1, verse 9. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The most basic offerings in the temple have been cut off because the grain and the wine have been obliterated by locust and drought. Worship had dried up in the temple. But now God promises a day when a fountain will issue forth from the temple, spilling out from the threshold of the temple, a deluge upon the land. And this, what Joel is saying right here, is echoing another prophetic word from the prophet Ezekiel, where Ezekiel has this vision of water flowing from the temple. God brought me, Ezekiel, back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple towards the east, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, so everything will live where the water goes, where the river goes. So like the other four promises, this image of river that flows from the temple is bursting, bursting with meaning. We see its effects flowing throughout the whole of Scripture and into the New Testament and into Jesus' words. There will not be, literally, 
water flowing out of the temple. That is not what this is saying. This is about worship. Worship will flow from the temple. This once dry, withered temple It's now flooded with worship, creating a deluge. And this worship now floods the earth, watering the whole earth, producing life wherever it goes. Life unto God wherever it goes. Worship is life when you are one of God's people. So these are our incredible promises that we get in a single verse. Verse 18 Promises of exceeding abundance, of overflowing joy, of abounding blessing, abundant life, and glorious worship. What a land that would be to live in. The promised land. The promised land as God always has been directing it to be, always intended to be, created it to be. The promised land now Consummated, Eden restored, Eden realized. And then we come to verse 19 and we get a stark contrast. A return to the darkness of the day of the Lord. Look at verse 19 again. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. So historically, the people of God have suffered mightily at the hands of the Egyptians and the Edomites, from slavery in Egypt to the ransacking of the temple at the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Edomites. The blood of God's people was on their hands. And yet this prophecy about Egypt and Edom is so much bigger than these two nations. And it fits into this greater theme of judgment upon the nations, upon all nations. Are there not countless nations that have the blood of God's people on their hands? Countless nations. Spill, spilling the blood of God's people. And whether that's Old Covenant Israel or New Covenant Church, New Covenant Christians... Have not God's people been subjected to these injustices at the hands of the nations ever since the days of Abraham and they continue today? As our brothers and sisters in places of the world are being rounded up and slaughtered simply because they call Jesus Lord? Yes, it is bigger than Edom in Egypt. Let's take Egypt as an example. What do you think of when you think of Egypt? Probably pyramids. Tributes to their gods, the pharaohs. You might also think of the Nile when you think of Egypt. One of the mightiest rivers on the face of the planet, watering the desert, making the desert fertile. You see a contrast? Joel is using, or contrast this with with the temple of God, the temple of the living God. And from this temple will issue forth the mightiest river of all, watering the whole earth. And so Joel is using Egypt and Edom as types. They represent proud nations of the world. 
that will not turn to God, that rebel against God, that try to make themselves exalted above God, above Mount Zion. They're proud in their own power. They're proud in their own economic uh, prosperity. They're proud in their military strength. They think their worldview and their culture is superior in whatever else. And God is making all that was mighty and proud on the earth a desolation now. Isaiah 2, 11 and 12 says he will. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. This is again about Mount Zion being lifted among, above all nations. When Egypt and Edom and all lofty nations are brought low and they are made a desolation, there will be the city of God standing alone, standing tall. A dwelling place for all of God's people where we all, who trust in Jesus, find our refuge. That city, that great city, again is talked about in verse 20. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. So when the nations have been brought low, eternally will stand Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the place where God's people dwell. And it will never fall, never fail, never be forgotten. It is eternal. This too must be greater than literal Judah. It is more than a literal Jerusalem. Indeed, Jerusalem, from its most ancient days, was always pointing to a greater reality. And the New Testament gives us more information on this. These prophetic places in Joel, Mount Zion and Judah and Jerusalem, it's not about points on a map. It's not about where these places are located. It's about who is located at these places. Look at verse 17 again. We're going back into last week's passage. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, in my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. So to understand these greater realities, or the greater reality of Jerusalem, we need to ask a series of questions Because everything we're seeing is an effect. The promises, the abundance, the joy, it's an effect. It's like the stirring of the leaves or the bouncing of the branch or the crying of a baby. Why are these things happening? Why are the mountains dripping with sweet wine? Why are the hills flowing with milk and the stream beds full of water and and worship issuing from the temple? Why are these things happening? Why is Jerusalem inhabited forever? Because God dwells with his people. As we saw in verse 17, he has made himself known like never before. He has come down from heaven, touched down on earth in the most profound, visceral way, and he now dwells with his people. And his people see him, and they are glorified. They are made holy. They are made righteous. They are holy now as he is holy. For God is with his people. 
And I want to show you one of the most beautiful passages in the whole New Testament, in the whole Bible. And it sheds light on the truest Jerusalem. And a spoiler, it is not about a city. From Revelation 21, the Apostle John writes, An angel carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And then John starts fumbling with language, trying to capture what he's seeing, trying to put it into words, but it's impossible. It's so beautiful, so majestic. And then this angel goes out and measures the city. And its dimensions are vast and perfect. It's a perfect cube. And if this cube were to exist on earth, it would stretch more than 1,300 miles into space. It would teeter on the circumference of the earth, on the curvature of the earth. Massive and beautiful and perfectly sized. Indescribable in its nature. And it's not a city. It is the dwelling place of God, but it does not have walls or buildings or borders. What if its perfect dimension and massive size represents God's perfect, sovereign choosing of the sum of his people? I know that was a meaty sentence. What if it's so vast and perfectly measured because God has chosen a perfect multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation? What if Jerusalem, even as we read about it in Joel, is pointing to the church? I read to you selectively from Revelation, and I left out a key verse. The very, ver- the very preceding verse from Revelation 21. Revelation 21, 9 says, Then the angel spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Not a people, not a bride, but a city. Massive and perfectly measured. Jerusalem is the bride of Christ, as we read it in Revelation. The perfect, massive city is the church, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Why is this important to understand? This all seems very abstract, maybe, in weird imagery, distant future. Because it's about the church. And these words that we read, if you are of the church, then these words are your future. This is about us and you, your part in all of this. This is yours. This is your guarantee, your promise, your reward. 
So we're not looking for a temple and a city in the Middle East to be rebuilt. Just as we're not looking for mountains to be flowing with wine and with milk. The city of God is built when the gospel changes human hearts. So we are looking to see that gospel change human hearts, our own and the world around us, so the city of God might be built to its perfect size and perfect measure. That's what we're looking for, that we might be in a part of this holy city, this beautiful bride, this glorified people. Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24, tell us that when we come to the gospel, we climb Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to God, the judge of all, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. You enter the new covenant, you climb Mount Zion and enter the city of God. How amazing! When we come to the New Testament, when we're, when we're in the Gospels, we hear Christ's words. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, I don't know if Jesus was specifically talking about Mount Zion, about Jerusalem, but I think it was informing his words. What is the most famous city on a hill in the Bible? Jerusalem, the city of God, where his people dwell. We, the church, are the perfect Jerusalem. God dwells not in what is built by human hands, but what he has built in human hearts. And he is making us radiant with his image, a shining city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And just as Jerusalem points to the church, the the land surrounding Jerusalem, Judah, that points to something too. That points to this place where we will dwell, the earth, the new earth. So when God dwells with his people, they are made holy. And the mountains will drip with wine, and the hills with abundant blessing, and the stream beds will gush with rivers of living water, and the earth will be flooded with worship. The whole earth will be transformed as the people are transformed, as we are transformed, so will transform the world. And it's not merely Eden restored. I maybe should have titled the sermon better. It is not Eden restored. It is Eden better than it ever could have been, or, and it ever was in the beginning. A greater Eden. It is the meeting of heaven and earth. And again, from Revelation 21. Then I saw, John says, a new heaven and a new earth. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, again, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned from her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. It's a very famous passage. And I read it last week, and I've read it dozens of weeks. This, though, is yours, and I hope it never becomes common to you. A new earth and a new body, and to sit with your God who will wipe every tear from your eye, remove every pain you have known, and He will be your God, and you will be His. Church, this is our future. God will dwell with us. And there will be such an exceeding abundance and blessing that we will overflow with worship. It will be breathing. It will be life. It will be our great joy. The words that we read in Joel, in Joel, in this place in the Bible, obscure and untouched so often. It's pointing to this ultimate fulfillment when God makes all things new, when He creates a better Eden for us to enjoy and live in. But, it seems like in typical Joel fashion or in typical prophetic fashion, it's not where Joel leaves us. Verse 21 I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Such a glorious note, another dark note. Maybe there is glory in the darkness. Because there are citizens of glorious city who have been cut down. Cut down in times of desolation and not restoration. They haven't seen the renewal of things. They haven't seen the days of peace. They only saw ruin. And they've been cut down. And they are the victims of injustice. And God is not going to leave that debt unpaid. He does not forget the cries of his afflicted. Listen to this. He does not forget the cries of the afflicted. And it is a final reminder that judgment comes and all the unjust and all the rebellious and the wicked, they will drink every last drop of that judgment. For the Lord dwells in Zion. For the Lord dwells in Zion, an eternal city, an eternal people. So even those that have been cut down because of injustice will be raised again to life to enter into this new, restored, recreated world. This dark verse is an incredible promise to us who believe. Maybe Joel had no idea this was referring to the resurrection. It is the resurrection. Those cut down will be avenged, and judgment 
will be brought to the unjust, unjust, but the Lord dwells in Zion, and the people of his also dwell in Zion. They too will live forever in a city that cannot be shaken. They too will be measured in that perfect number in the city of God among the bride of Christ. Joel wants us to know, God wants us to know, that the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night, like an inescapable freight train. It is coming, and there is darkness, and there is promise of abundance and blessing and joy and worship and restoration of being with God and of finding your refuge in Him. And on the day of darkness, there we find our security and our safety and our stronghold in God and in His promises. God's promises so complete and so joyful, so overwhelming that they will carry you through any injustice and even through death. They will carry you, and you will weather the day of the Lord, for there you find yourself in the stronghold of God. The Lord dwells in Zion, in human hearts, the place where the Spirit has been poured out into, in your hearts, the heart that you repented with from your sin and turned to God. So may worship today and on into eternity, issue forth from the temple that is our heart, the dwelling place of the living God, like rivers of living water for all who have come to drink of Jesus Christ. May we be the city on the hill that is brilliant, drawing travelers into safety, away from the thieves and the robbers that are there to waylay them, to take their life What does this mean now? Proclaim from the mountain that the day of the Lord is coming. From the mountain proclaim that safety can be found here. Call to all people. The day of the Lord comes. Proclaim the gospel from its heights. What greater charge have you, Christian? God himself descended from the mountain as a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who humbled himself to take on human form. He humbled himself to go to that cross where his blood was spilled out, where he died, to take your sins upon his shoulders and give you his perfect righteousness, to make you holy. And all we must do is believe it, to come to him for drink, This is the gospel. Speak it. Proclaim it. The day of the Lord comes. The day of the Lord came upon one for us. When upon him all of that wrath that God had stored up for us was poured out upon him. And his blood, not ours, was spilled 
now represented in this little cup. Signal. And his body broken, represented by this tiny cardboard-like wafer. An incredible gift. This blood now flows to us to restore us and to make us holy. I'm going to say a brief prayer and then we're going to partake in communion. Father, how grateful I am. I I pray how grateful we all are for the price that was paid that we might be able to climb Mount Zion, to leave the valley of decision where condemnation and judgment was being poured out. And climb Mount Zion and enter this holy city to be counted among your people. An incredible gift and such a great cost. Thank you for paying that price. Oh, Jesus, our Savior. In your name, I pray, amen.